Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Hey, y'all. Arnoldo here, uh, lead pastor at Anchor Southwest. It is so good for you to join us. Whether you're joining us from Anchor City uh, in the morning or Anchor Southwest in the afternoon, it is so good to be together, albeit digitally. We're almost there. We have been in the uh, book of Exodus for a couple of months now, uh, as we've been in our own kind of Exodus in lockdown, and we have three weeks left to explore the rest of the book. We did have four weeks, but unfortunately, we've had to cut this series short by one week. Reason being is that in a few weeks, we want to get together as uh, a team and speak about, talk about what, it, what it's going to look like for us to return to in-person gatherings. Uh, we don't have a firm date for that yet, but please follow along on all of our socials so that we can let you know and keep you posted as to when City will be back and when Southwest will be back. Because we want to consider not just the fact of returning, but we want to consider what kind of people we want to be, what kind of postures we want to assume as the people of God before we quote unquote enter back into the building. And we understand that this is a tense cultural moment for us and our churches have been touched by this tension very personally. So we want to navigate this moment with humility and gentleness and charity and above all, love, because love will be the measure, how we love one another will be the measure of our communities. Now with that said, as I said, we have three weeks left in the book of Exodus, and uh, today we're going to be exploring the famous story of the golden calf narrative in chapters 32 to 33. But before we do so, how did we jump from chapter 24 last week to 32 today. Well, Exodus 25 and 31 take place while Moses is on the mountain. And these chapters here are instructions from Yahweh to his people as to how to construct a tabernacle, a mobile temple, so that God would be able to dwell in the midst of his people. And these instructions are repeated almost to the T as they are enacted in Exodus 35 to 39. And so we're actually going to be treating chapters 30, uh, 25 to 31 and 35 all the way to 40, in fact, in one week as we close out this series. And so today, Exodus 32, next week, Exodus 34, and then the final week, about 13 chapters. Now, I know that sounds nerdy, but trust me, you do not want to miss what is coming up. So, with the lay of the land in front of us, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that, in fact, you are good. We thank you that you are with us, regardless of where we may be finding ourselves right now. We thank you that you go before us. We thank you that you come and visit us through your word. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to indwell in us and in our communities. We thank you that regardless of whether we are uh, meeting in a particular building or, or a particular location, you are with us. And so I pray now, Lord, that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people. Help me to remember the things that will be. All these things we pray that you would receive glory and that we would receive joy, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. 
amen and amen. You know, last week, Brad Cornerman, uh, the gospel community's pastor over at City, he uh, walk, walked us through Exodus 24, where Israel and Yahweh celebrate their covenant together, their, their marriage, as it were, together. Exodus 24 is the equivalent of what, of what we would think of as a marriage ceremony. And at every wedding that I've been to or that I've officiated, there's an opportunity uh, for the newlyweds to sit down in some very special chairs and to sign the documents, to sign all of the wedding documents. And here in, in Exodus 20, uh, rather last week, Exodus 24, that was like the signing of the documents where Yahweh says, I will, and Israel says, I will. And Exodus 24 ends on quite a high note. It's happening. It's happening. God is creating a new world with a new people. And this time, it's not happening through a cataclysmic flood like we see in Genesis chapter 6 with Noah and his family. Through a partnership with these people, God is recreating the world. The writer of Exodus is doing something so special here that if we were reading with Jewish eyes, we would see this so clearly. Moses going up and down the mountain seven times. There are seven divine speeches in chapters 25 to 31. All of this primes us as readers to understand this, that God is engaging in a new creative act, a new seven days of creation. That this here, the God who is on top of Mount Sinai, this is the God of Genesis 1 and 2. You've got to appreciate the genius of this text. But just like there was a Genesis 3 to counter, uh, as a counterpart to Genesis 1 and 2, and Genesis 3 is a story that depicts how humanity allowed chaos and sin and dysfunction to take over. Just like there is a Genesis 3 to its 1 and its 2, there is a Genesis 32 to, uh, rather, there is an Exodus 32 to the Exodus 24. If Genesis 3 explains how humanity as a whole plunges into sin and death, well, Exodus 32 explains how Israel plunges into the same fate. And even from day dot, before, listen, before the ink is dry on the wedding documents, Israel and listen, I don't, want to def- I don't want to offend anyone here uh, with the language that I am about to use. This is language that Scripture often uses. But before the ink is dry on the wedding documents, Israel whores itself out on the wedding night. This is a type of forceful and to our ears profane language that Scripture itself attaches to idolatry. 78 times in the Old Testament, this word picture is used in order to help us not only understand cognitively, but feel in our bones and in our guts the disgrace that we bring upon ourselves when we find our enoughness in anything else other than Yahweh. But we're getting a bit ahead of uh, ourselves here. Let's dive in to the text. Where do we begin? For starters, remember, it's been about 40 days at this point 
that Moses has been gone. That, that's a pretty long time, about a month and a half. And all they know is that Moses and Joshua went back up on the mountain and left Aaron and someone else called her, H-U-R, her, in charge while he was gone. Exodus 24, 15 says this, Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud and said this. Now the appearance, or rather, the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a what? A devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain how long? 40 days and 40 nights. So put yourself in their Birkenstocks. What would you be feeling, right? Moses, your leader, your prophet, your, your priest, he walks into a volcano. You know, this sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. And then, and then this happens. This happens in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now, I, I don't even know where to begin. But whoever these people are, and it's clear later, later on in the story that it's not all of Israel that is acting this way, but whoever these ringleaders are, they are rude as hell. Pardon the language. I mean, the complete lack of respect with this one word, up. And, and, and that comes across in English just as rude as it comes across in the Hebrew. And add to that the way that they talk about Moses, their leader. I mean, they are adding uh, insult to injury here. The disrespect, the entitlement is almost, almost unbelievable. But the, the, the very same impulses that are pulsing, running through Israel, run through me. And so it's not quite as unbelievable, though it's no less shocking. They just said that they would obey the terms of the covenant. And here they are about to break the first three commandments that they just heard. Let's jump back into the story here in verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So, all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, when you think of golden calf, we have in our, in our minds a picture of a docile, kind of cute calf that looks like this, when in fact the word here uh, for calf is masculine and, and means a young bull or bullock and probably looked more like the one that is found in Wall Street in New York City, much like this one. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. 
You know, there, there are too many things to notice in this text. But first off, I, I want you to remember uh, where this gold is coming from. If you remember in Exodus 12, when Yahweh was redeeming them through a great show of power and of judgment on the gods of Egypt, he rescued Israel from slavery just a few months ago. And if you remember what the scene was just before Israel was about to bounce from Egypt, this was it. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for what? For silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh, the Lord, had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So all of this gold that they gave Aaron was a gift from Yahweh a symbol of his liberation. And this is exactly how idolatry works. The very things that God gives us to worship him with and through and, and to reflect him to the world, we use as replacements. We fashion these things into idols. And we need to see that this isn't a pre-modern problem. This is not a non-Christian problem. This is not a religious problem. This is not a problem of the left or the right. This is a human problem. This right here sits at the very core of what is wrong with the world where we take good things and we elevate them to this God status and thereby we destroy both ourselves and the gift as we will see. This is what Israel does in our text. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden and this is what we have been doing ever since. This touches each and every one of us, albeit in different ways. But no one is immune to this dynamic. How does this touch us particularly? You know, owning a home is a gift. It is not wrong to own a home or, or investment properties. But our culture broadly and our culture in Sydney specifically has made owning a home its own idol. It has become a sign of quote-unquote making it. It has become a sign of social righteousness, of being okay. And when our secret thoughts begin to lie to us in the, recess, in the recesses of our imaginations with statements like this, when I get the keys, quote-unquote, I'll finally find some contentment. I did it. Now I can be seen as somebody. If only I had a house, I'd be happy. You see, those narratives, they lodge themselves into our hearts and into our minds, and thereby we are in the throes of an idol. You see, of course, owning a home is not a bad thing. I mean, that's ridiculous to even say. It's a, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a, it's a very wise thing to do. But when we begin to find our center there, our worth there, our value there, when saving enough money has become the goal of your house, getting that 5%, that 10%, that 
And if it's hindering your ability to be generous, then there it may have lodged itself in your heart and imagination as an idol. Even more so in our age of spectacle where we must post everything, where nothing is sacred, where uh, something isn't official until it becomes what? You can can finish the sentence for me. Most of you can finish that sentence until it becomes what? Facebook official. We feel like we must post a picture next to that sold sign in order to be seen as making it. Things which obviously in and of themselves are not wrong. But when they become a sign of our social standing and our righteousness, our being okay, our being enough, we've crafted our own golden calf. Relationships are a gift. More than ever during this time of our physical and social and psychological isolation, we feel it deep, deep in our bones and in our guts that we were created for community. We were created for relationships. We were created to know others and to be known and seen and touched in healthy, life-giving ways. Something that in our present context has been virtually non-existent for so many of you, so many of us. So relationships are something that we are created to engage in and enjoy. We are social creatures by nature. And yet we make relationships themselves our idol. We elevate them to a place where we demand that they fulfill us, that they complete us, that they make us enough. And because, excuse me, because we feel that if we are not in a romantic relationship, we are not loved, we are not wanted, we seek these things in destructive ways. We elevate romance to the point where we begin to engage in seriously destructive relationships, whether they be one-night stands or casually hooking up with someone on Tinder or lowering your standards and entering or staying in an abusive relationship. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the idol of romance can lead you to make decisions that are an absolute contradiction of the faith that you profess. It can lead you to engage in sexual intercourse before marriage. It can lead you to cohabitate. It'll cause you to push boundaries and deny in practice the reality that you are not your own, that you were bought with a price so that we are called and you are called and we are all called to honor God with our body. But it'll also cause you to elevate marriage to such a degree that you think that you'll finally be happy once you're married, and that singleness is some kind of disease that you need to cure with a partner. It doesn't help that culture inside and outside of the church reinforce these false narratives surrounding relationships and romance. They prop up this false God to the point that we fail to forget this very central fact that Jesus was the most fulfilled and happiest person who has ever walked the earth, the most self, like he didn't have a low self-esteem, Jesus was not insecure, Uh, Jesus was whole, and he was a single man, a virgin single for all of his 
life, the most satisfied person who's ever walked this earth. Singleness and marriage are glorious, and both are to be used to glorify God in their own respective ways together. And it's not just sex and romance and houses and cars that can lodge themselves in our hearts and imaginations as little golden bulls or calves. It's just about anything and just about everything that has been given to us as a gift to enjoy that we can attach our souls to. And we can begin to use those things to find our identity, our worth, our value. Having kids or growing our church, the ways that our bodies look and are shaped, the people we know and are connected to, the need to be seen as important. Pick your poison. These things that are given to us as good things, as good gifts, we fashion these things into idols. And in the end, they promise us everything, ask us for nothing, but in the end, they leave us battered and bruised and bitter. This is as much a problem in our world today as it was thousands of years ago at the, fa- at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is a word for you today. So Aaron, Aaron takes their gold and with a graving tool makes this golden bull, this golden calf, and chaos ensues. Not a whole lot of sense makes here. There's not a whole lot of sense making here. And I think that's the point, that the people are asking for this physical representation, a parody of divine presence, where they were about to be commissioned, which you'll find out later on, but where they were about to be commissioned to build a sanctuary for Yahweh with this gold, they're building a cheap knockoff of Yahweh. This is spiritual adultery right on their wedding night. And they rose up, verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, they're not talking about the Olympics here. They're not talking about uh, beach cricket. Uh, This is not the kind of uh, play uh, that this text is talking about. The NIV says that they got up and uh, indulge in, in revelry. And this word revelry or, or play uh, can be translated as, as just that, but it has heavy connotations of, of actually, uh, it implies fondling or, or sexual touching. It's used for, uh, in, in scripture as someone who's engaging in sex. And in this case, most likely, it means that they got up to engage in some form of religious orgy. I mean, this is this doesn't come up in the 19, I think it's 55, uh, uh, B- BBCCL movie, uh, The Ten Commandments. Um, this part doesn't come up. But we need to see, we need to feel the fall of Israel here is steep. And the story continues in verse 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Yahweh sees from the top of the mountain what is going on down in the camp. And in typical fashion, in typical parent fashion, uh, Yahweh is like Moses. Come get your kids. Right? Right? You've seen this. You've done this even where one of your kids is acting up and you need to create some distance for your safety, for their safety, for everyone's safety. You need to create some distance. And so you call your husband or your wife and you're like, so let me tell you what your son did today. That's exactly what is going on here. God, you know, did you notice that uh, Yahweh said, go down for your people, Moses, for the people that you brought up out of Egypt. God is done here. He has had it. A husband who was being cheated on on the wedding night says he's about to just start over with Moses. Forget Abraham, forget Jacob, forget Isaac, forget Israel, forget the 12. I'm done with them. Moses, we're going to start with you again. And he tells Moses, get out of my way. I am done. But Moses, it says in verse 11, Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel's another name for Jacob. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it for." Ever. Moses is a smart boy. He does a couple things. He does three things. Moses reminds Yahweh about whose people these folks really are. Moses is like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to let you speed past here and pretend like I didn't hear you say what you said. You called them my people that I brought up out of Egypt. Hold on. They're, they're your people, like your people that you brought out of Egypt. Like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do that. Like, I, you know, I, I partnered with you. You sent me. Aaron was my mouthpiece. You were there. You, we, we, we were there, right? We were doing this together, but, but they were your people. They are your people, your power, your might, your hand that brought us out, not, not mine. And so Moses reminds Yahweh, the first thing that he does, he reminds him that they are his people, his treasured possession. Second thing, Moses reminds Yahweh about his own reputation, like Yahweh's own reputation. To destroy Israel at this point would reflect poorly on the God who had just rescued them. We've been through this a couple times. This is holy PR. And it matters. It matters because Yahweh's desire is for Egypt too to be folded in into his redemptive plan. God's name cannot be a laughing stock for the nations, not because the Lord, not because Yahweh uh, has a bruised ego, but because his desire is for all to see him for who he is and to find their joy in pledging allegiance to him. 
And that won't happen if he destroys Israel and reneges on the next thing that Moses reminds Yahweh of. And the next thing, the first one was that, uh, Yahweh, remember, these are your people. Second, you're going to be a laughing stock. Like, don't profane your own name to the nations by destroying these people. The third thing is, Yahweh, remember your prophecies. Remember who you are. Remember your promises. The promises that you made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel, Jacob. Moses is appealing to God's own character and own his, his selfhood in order to have him change his mind about destroying Israel. Now, I, I wish that I could just pause here and stop. And there, listen, there's going to be so much that we're not going to cover today. But please leave a comment. Send in your connect card with your question. We would love to uh, give spaces for engaging with the text a little deeper than what we can do here in just a few minutes. But I got to move on. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Yahweh relented. And Moses and Joshua, uh, they return to the camp and they think they're, as they're going down the mountain, they start hearing these sounds. Is there a party? Are these war cries? Like, did someone attack Israel while we were up there? Verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp, this is Moses, and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Like the same language, the same words that are used for, for God's anger burning hot. Moses' nose got hot. That's the, the literal. To, to say that your nose burns hot is, is, is to express anger. Moses gets angry. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. He does these three things to this golden bull as a picture of its total annihilation. He burns it, he grinds it, and then he scatters it. And to top that off, he makes the people drink the water upon which their, uh, uh, their beloved gods were scattered as a display of the reality that idolatry is not simply externally bowing down or engaging in a religious type of orgy, but it deals with the very internal realities as well that are deepest to us. It's not just about externals. It's not just about what we do with our bodies, bowing down or giving them to, uh, 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 to wanton pleasure. It is about the inner internal recesses of ourselves as well. And then, and then he turns to Aaron, right? So he deals with the people. Then he turns to Aaron, and this has got to be one of the most comedic exchanges in Scripture. And this is it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Like, yo, like, what did they do, bro? I was up there for six weeks, 40 days. Like, what? Like, go explain this to me, bro. And Aaron said, chill out. 
Moses. Uh, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Now he's being real polite about this. You, you know the people that they are set on evil. You, man, Moses, you, you know how they are. You, you, you remember, you know, uh, how they've been testing us the whole way. They've been testing Yahweh the whole way. Like, you know their vibe. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us as for this Moses, uh, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any uh, who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and the calf came out. Blame shifting comes so naturally to us, doesn't it? Adam did it. Eve did it. I do it. You do it. Here, Aaron does it. Shame, what shame does, shame tries to create distance between the action and ourselves. We're trying to atone for our own sin by deflection. And you can imagine Aaron, hands up, shoulders shrugged. Like, listen, one thing led to another. I put the gold in and, and the calf just came out. Actually, we have a, a colorized photo of the actual event. This is it. Like, listen, I threw the gold in, the fire, and poof, out the calf came. But remember, Aaron, Aaron furnished, like he, he fashioned this with a graving tool. And not only that, but he also built an altar for it right after. And not only that, but made a proclamation saying, tomorrow we're going to hold a feast to Yahweh. And as the readers, as the readers, we, we, we can... We, we know uh, that Aaron is full of it at this point. And you can tell that Moses, uh, at least I'm, I'm filling this in here, Moses can also tell that Aaron is full of it. And he doesn't even dignify Aaron with a response. I mean, what a mess. What a mess of a situation. And it continues to devolve and devolve and devolve. And we don't have enough time to, to, to get into the, all the details. But in the next several verses... A scene ensues of intense bloodshed as the people continue to break loose. And 3,000 people fall by the sword that day due to their unrepentant idolatry. And the rest of the story is about Moses, this great liberator, pleading yet again, like he did on the top of the mountain, yet again he pleads for the people despite a plague that Yahweh sends on them. Moses successfully intercedes for the people yet again, but all isn't as it should be. And our text, unlike Brad's last week's, our text does not end on a high note. Uh, our text ends on quite a, a low note. Read with me chapter 33 from verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The whole point, and I mean 
the whole point of this entire project that Yahweh is up to with Moses and the people and Pharaoh, like the whole point is so that Yahweh would be able to dwell in the midst of his people with them. The entire storyline of scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation is about the withness of God. God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his creation. And they mourn. Because yes, they may go ahead and get this quote-unquote promised land. They'll get the land flowing with milk and honey, but God will not be with them and they respond correctly. They mourn. This is the same question that we would ask, that I've been asked before, that if you had everything that you could ever imagine, that if heaven, if the new earth would be everything that you could imagine, but Jesus wasn't there, would it be heaven? And these people respond correctly. They mourn and they move along with the promises of God, but not with God in their midst. And this is a story of the fall of Israel. This was their chance to walk as the renewed people of God. And now we see that they too are caught up, they're subject still to the powers of sin and chaos. And Yahweh knows this. And so he keeps his distance. And the story ends on a quite depressing note. Now the book doesn't end this way and we'll have to get there in the next two weeks. So I invite you to come back. But what, 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 what is this meant to do in us and for us today, right now? It's, it's supposed to do this. It's supposed to put up on display the reality and the weight of idolatry. It's no small or insignificant thing to replace God as the operating center of your life. And we've all done it and we all do it. And it's really important for us to understand that this isn't, it's not a dangerous thing to replace God because uh, God is petty. It's a dangerous thing to replace God. It's a dangerous thing to commit idolatry because idolatry in the end kills you. An idol will promise you all things but give you nothing in the end. What you realize is that in the end you've actually given it everything. And in return, bitterness and brokenness. The security that having money promises you is found out to be hollow. The, the, the acceptance that being in a romantic relationship promises you is found to be faulty. Sickness, pandemics, and diseases come and they prove impotent the promises that comfort and health promised you. And you end up destroyed in the process. And this is the whole point of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1 where he says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, why did God give them up? Well, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the what? The creator, the creator who is blessed forever Amen. Do you see the logic here? We exchange the creator God for a created thing and wrapped up, you need to understand this, wrapped up in the dynamic that when we do that, we become like the thing we worship. We become dead 
and lifeless because the things that we worship, we end up becoming like in the end. But the question is for us, how, how do we know? How can we tell when, 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 when something veers from being a good gift into a terrible God? And I want to offer us three ways, as we close up, three ways uh, where we can discern our own golden calves. And the three ways are we look at our imagination, we look at our bank accounts, and third, we look at our disappointments with God. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. And clearly, clearly, it's not that a few daydreams indicate that you are in the throes of an idol, that a good thing has shape-shifted into a golden calf. The key here is to take an audit of the things that you most often and consistently and habitually think about while you're drifting. What scenarios do you often cook up in your own mind? Is it a, a dream home or that reno? Is it the dream girl or the dream job? Is it getting attention from that person or being noticed? Where do you go in the privacy of your own imagination and heart to get joy? Where do you go in the privacy of your own imagination to get joy? Look at your imagination. The second thing is you look at your bank statement. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, that if we want to find out the state of our hearts, we will investigate the location of our wallets. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And what we spend our money on is one of the best indicators of false idols that are lodged in our hearts and in our imaginations. It's often the case. It's often the case that we adjust our charitable giving to our lifestyles rather than giving God and others our best and adjusting our lifestyle choices to that reality. Chase the money and you'll find the idol. And the third thing is that we look at our disappointments with God. How do you, how do you answer, how do you answer un, how do you respond, rather, how do you respond to unanswered prayers? You know, it's understandable and healthy for us to experience a measure of disappointment when we pray and we plead with God to give us something that we think we need or that we, we pray and we plead for him to remove something that is hurting us like chronic pain. But what happens when you're devout, right, and you give and you serve and quote unquote, God doesn't come through for you? The way that we handle these disappointments are a key to isolating the things that we are using God to get. That is your true God. So if you're single and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you haven't gotten married, let alone found someone to enter into a relationship with, it's right for that to sting a little, but is it producing bitterness in you toward God for quote-unquote not delivering? Is It's right for you to pray and to plead for God to remove that chronic pain or that depression or to heal that marriage. 
But when it doesn't happen, where do your emotions go? We look at our imaginations. We follow the money. And we look, we investigate how we handle our disappointments with God. Now, this uh, doesn't sound real encouraging, right? But hold on, let me tell you that it is. And let me tell you why. The good news about idolatry, and there is good news about speaking about idolatry. Let me tell you what it is. That idolatry can only be uncovered by already being enveloped in grace. Idolatry can only be uncovered by already being enveloped in grace, meaning that in our pursuit of displacing and dislodging our own golden calves, this happens in the context of already being redeemed, of already being adopted, of already being saved. And so we are free. We're free to confront our idols. Why? Because we are safe. You are safe to do so. Because the only way that you could even become aware of an idol is you have been moved on by grace in God. We are free. Free because of the blood of Christ. Free because we have already been redeemed once and for all by Jesus, the Son of God. As Fleming Rutledge beautifully puts it, she says this, the light of Christ reveals sin by the brightness of the redemption already accomplished. The light of Christ reveals sin by the brightness of the redemption already accomplished. So as we go away and allow God's word to penetrate our hearts, and to reveal our own golden calves, I pray that you would understand that you are already seen by Him, that you are already perfectly loved by Him, and you are wholly secured in grace, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if you don't know that love, if you don't know that grace, if you don't know that acceptance, I pray that you would turn, that you would repent, that you would turn to him, that you would admit your state, admit the state of neediness, admit the state of, of, of depression or desertion, your own emptiness, that you would admit the ways that you have been trying to fill in this gaping hole of eternity that God has placed in you with sex or money or religion, but you need him. You need Jesus. And I pray that you would let us know somehow around here. Press a button. Let us know. I mean, just let somebody pray with somebody. Let us know that you have been moved on with grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord. I thank you for those who uh, even now you are uh, administering your holy grace to, your, your Holy Spirit power to, to save. And I pray, Lord, that these seeds that have been sown of the good news of Jesus, that the devil would not come and scoop them away, that they would not go on, on hard ground, but that this would be good soil and that, that faith would spring up. We can't do this on our own. This is not our work. This is your work, Holy Spirit. So I pray for those who are far that they would come near. I pray for those who are uh, 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 um, 
uh, sad, anxious, depressed, that they would sense you near even in the pits with them. For those of us who are on a high, may we rejoice in your name and may we all, Lord, understand that we are loved beyond measure. Give us the power to understand that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Love you guys. See you next week.